Canadian Military History Podcast. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. We're continuing with the second part of the episode with Sam McGee. Now, in part one, I introduced him as WO2 Sam McGee. And then when I welcomed him to the podcast, I welcomed him as QMSI Sam McGee. Some of you might be wondering why I would use two different terms. So essentially, W02, Warrant Officer Second Class, was the rank, so the rank that he was paid at, and QMSI, Quartermaster Sergeant Instructor, was the appointment that he held. So for example, my rank is Chief Warrant Officer, and my appointment is Brigade Sergeant Major. So people could call me BSM, Brigade Sergeant Major, or they could call me Chief Warrant Officer, but it'd be more common to call me by my appointment rather than my actual rank. So at the intro to the episode, I did refer to him as QMSI McGee, but his rank would have been WO2. The Canadian Forces got rid of the rank of WO2 back in 1968 when we went through something known as unification. That was where the Royal Canadian Navy, the Canadian Army, and the Royal Canadian Air Force were unified and became the Canadian Armed Forces that we know today. Just a little highlight, we're going through a little bit of a return to some of those earlier traditions and a little bit of our earlier past right now by returning to the rank insignias of the Officer Corps pre-unification. So in other words, we're getting rid of the rank insignias that were adopted from the Merchant Marine, which are bars, skinny bars and wide bars to denote rank insignia of officers. And we're going to the pips and crowns, or more accurately described as stars and crowns, because what we call pips are actually called stars. That's the actual designation for them. So Canadians should be seeing their officers proudly wearing their stars and crowns over the next few months here in 2014. Let's get back to hearing some more from WO2 or QMSI, Sam McGee. Sam, what's your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? Wow, that's a toughie because I'm very fortunate. My life has been a joy of successes and my fighting for the betterment of everything has been productive. It's also got me in a lot of hot water but I was willing to try and survive. What's my greatest achievement? Well, I know after the war how I contributed immensely. During the war, I guess being a part of the force was, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. It was a a terrific thing. And see, I'm the only Canadian twice decorated by the U.S. And if you can imagine, I had a two-hour lecture on first aid, and I became a first aider. Two hours. And I have no idea how many people have done first aid on. So you see, there's a lot of joy in my life, a lot of experiences. And and some of the things I was confronted with in the force were unreal. 
I'm hungover from a party and I'm under arrest for desertion, if you can imagine. <laughs> I'm laying in the ditch hungover asleep and suddenly there's pow. And even under the influence, I automatically get up, head for where the sound is. Got my first aid kit, which was separate and hung on my belt and around my head. And I dropped it at the side of the road and I ran in the minefield and everybody was yelling and screaming. And I ran right in, picked Joe Davis up, fireman's lift and brought him out. And they're still squawking, and anyhow, his foot was sheared off. I did first aid on him, and it worked and saved his leg. You know, these accomplishments are unreal. I can't pinpoint anyone. I was doing first aid on Robert Lapine. I'm doing first aid on him, and the bullets hit all underneath him, and if they'd been four to six inches higher, they'd have cut him to ribbons. Six to eight inches, they'd have cut me right in half. I put his arm on his chest and said, hang on, and grabbed him like a wheelbarrow and pulled him off over the ridge. Had to go back and get my first aid equipment and finish doctoring him. And I saved his arm by putting the tourniquet under the armpit and up over the, you know, that knob on the shoulder? Yeah. Yeah, and it had never been done that way. And what happened was that when I called the four stretcher bearers, they started arguing with me. So I just went over and got my rifle. I said, I pointed the rifle at all four of them. I said, now you listen to what I say or I'm going to kill you if he loses this arm. You don't touch that arm until about 30 to 40 minutes from now. If you spot blood, don't touch it. It's working. If you don't spot blood, then loosen it. And just loosen it until you see blood. When you see blood, you know it's operating. Then you tighten it back up again. And I said, if you lose that arm, I'll come looking for you and kill you. I was a maniac. And I didn't care. I lived by the day. Now I pulled Joe out of the minefield with his foot off, and I'm still hung over. And we're pinned down to crossroads by these two pillboxes. Now, are you ready? My left hand calls me and says, draws two circles on the ground. He said, there's two pillboxes behind us, as you know. I said, yep. He said, there's now three people up there between these pillboxes. So uh, nobody knew of this until this moment. So he looks at me, he said, and I'm just alone. He said, I want you to go up there. He said, if they're ours, you should get them out of here. If they aren't, they're all yours. <laughs> One against three. Believe it. Private McGee. So I'm walking up the road, and Philio from Alberta, laying in the ditch, he said, where are you going? I said, for a walk. He said, can I come? I said, I don't give a shit. And this is the way we were. Yep. So he gets up, joins me, and I yell back at the left hand. I said, sir. And he says, he didn't give a shit. I said, no, no, for the record, in case something happens. Are you ready? He got wounded. So anyhow, uh, walking up the road, and all of a sudden, I realized that this cliff is now down to a three, four-foot uh, wall along the roadway. So I said, this road comes right in front of the pillbox. I'm not going up that way. I'm going straight up here. And I just turned to my right and went up the hill and clawing away. And the next thing I know, I'm grabbing burnt brush. It's, which is a sign they've, they've burnt the area in front of the pillbox. So I look, and my God, it's a monster. I'd never seen one before, and I had no idea what it was. I discovered later it was part of the Magino line. Right, yes. On the Italian side, they built pillboxes. On the French side, they built forts. In the forts, the French forts, they actually had little railways to get them from point A to point B. They could stay in there 90 days with nothing in the French forts. Unreal. And here I am against this damn monster with the M1 in my hand. So I looked and, and I said, oh my God. Filio comes up and he says, 
So I get up to go, and when there's two, you don't tell the other guy what to do. It's part of the team. If there's three, then you tell somebody who's doing what and why. I get up to walk in, and I didn't say anything to him, and next thing I know, he's behind me walking, too. Well, he's supposed to stay and watch, protect my ass, and to get the information back. So anyhow, if they get towards the pillbox, the smell would knock you over. Toilet tree, you name it. And the sun was up, and Jesus, here's this monstrous pillbox, and how come they didn't open fire, I don't know. Anyhow, suddenly a grenade came out of the door, and hit the I-beam, and that was that. And in the split second, I was so fast, I turned around and I dove at Philio, knocked him down. And I don't know why to this day, but I hung on to him and dragged him over to the side of the pillbox. If you look at the pillbox, he's now over on the right side, where the soil had been worn away over the years. And that's the only protection we had. They turned around and kept throwing out the grenades, and of course it knocks you out nearly off your feet. You get groggy as hell. Anyhow, uh, they stopped, and again, with a little bit of German, I said, Akhtun, come through for Hans Uven, come out with your hands up. With a little German, a little French, and that talked him into opening the door, and we got 20-some prisoners. So Filio and I were awarded the Bronze Star because in the first place we saved the three guys' lives, which were our guys. We also took out the two pillboxes, and we were able to get into position to take up our position in the line before dark. So we both received the Bronze Star. Amazing. Guess what? Philio went down and was uh, wounded. From the prisoners, we got $25 each, and we got $600 for Philio, and the other guy was his foot off, Joe Davis. So they got 600 bucks each going into the hospital. I saw Joe Davis, but I never saw Philio again. Wow. We went to reunions, and our paths never crossed. Amazing, isn't it? Absolutely. What's your next question? Sam, the next question is, who was your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered? That's a good question. Like this, I could write a book on those people that, for me, were very influential, you know, in my life. Within the force, it's almost a day-by-day thing. Like there's Joseph T. Jameson from Cancel, Nova Scotia. Uh, If you can imagine, we're sitting on the side of the mountain. And Joe's over in the ditch, and he's filthy, and he's got a bray on, and he's whittling away with his knife. And up comes this bird colonel. Now, how this bird colonel got up to where we were, I don't know. It's one of you and his ass shot off. Anyhow, he stands up in the Jeep, and he's only got a driver with him. He said, who's in charge here? And, of course, we don't stand up, and we don't salute, we don't do anything. And Joe says, I am, sir, Private Joseph T. Jameson, Castle, Nova Scotia, Canada. He's in American uniform. Colonel can't make head or tail of this. So there's a staff sergeant in front of him. He said to the staff sergeant, he said, who's in charge here? And it was Cuff, and Cuff points at Joseph. He said, he is, sir, Private Joseph T. Jameson, Chancellor Nova Scotia, and he's an effing good one. The colonel said to his driver, get me the hell out of here. This is a screwball outfit. <laughs> and the story, Joseph T. Jameson got busted from a staff sergeant to a private. But he's our platoon sergeant. Are you ready? Yeah. In the force, you didn't lose your job. You just lost your money. <laughs> so he's reduced from a staff sergeant to a private. He's still the platoon sergeant. Our company commander's out of action, and our platoon commander's now company commander. So Joseph T. Jameson, private, is the platoon commander as a private. Right. Believe it. And he was good. I tell one night, I said, what's your problem? I said, Joe, we're in a minefield. I know. He said, how do you know? He said, I just found the German box that the mines come up for. And he said, well, he said, I don't know how long we've been in or where we are. He said, with regards to the mines, 
But he said, don't let on. Just keep moving and follow me. We went through the minefield and never set off a mine. Utterly amazing. See, you don't even question it. No. Just follow me. <laughs> Unreal? Yeah, definitely. John D. Red was uh, my platoon commander. And a little guy stood, uh, if he stood five foot, he was lucky. And he wore glasses and he had a haircut where he didn't have a quarter of an inch on his head. John D. Red. Unreal. He was a Mormon. So you can imagine in the stories of his family life and being able to sleep in more than one family home. Unreal. I visited him in Utah, by the way. But unreal in his ability, knowledge, and leadership. You'd follow him anywhere, anytime. And uh, we, I tell the day that the Canadian Army had the liquor ration for officers, so the Americans bought it. I automatically bring it into him and give it to him. And the next thing I know, he calls Willie Long, who was a pursuit at the time, Willie Long and I, and he said, you guys take this bottle and enjoy it. So we said, thanks. So we take the bottle out, and I look at Willie, and I said, he turned down a drink. He might be a Mormon, but Jesus Christ, he could drink most people under the table. So I looked at Willie, I said, something's wrong. And then I said to Willie, I said, that new kid. Yeah, I said, is he a Mormon? And he said, yeah. So I said, get your mug. So the two of us got our mugs and went in, the three of us drank a whole bottle of whiskey straight. <laughs> we downed the whole thing. Oh, we're at the adjoining uh, point in France, and right above Nice, Monte Carlo, all that area there. And we're the last contact from the Mediterranean North to the American Army. And this American Army group next to us were unreal, and they kept being attacked and so on. I got tired, and I wouldn't repair the, the communication wires anymore. I just got tired of it. If you can visualize now, you're in the mountains, and this roadway comes along from their back of their mountain, right around to ours and right on down around this way. Well, so in other words, there's this opening between the two mountain tops. So anyhow, John D. says, let's secure this passage, he said, because we can't do it with 40. We had 28 men. He said, we can't do it with 28. So I said, what do you want? He said, well, he said, if we put up some mortars, he said, that'll be great. We wound up, we had three heavy mortars, two light mortars, five mortars all in place with the ammunition right there. And I could go along, and uh, they all had their targets, and could go from the targets. And private me could run out, put in five bombs in five different mortars, and hit five different targets in a matter of minutes. Amazing, eh? Yeah, absolutely. We did the crazy thing. <laughs> we did the impossible thing. We did the no idea thing. See, it was crazy. But there we were, and I could pump five rounds in and hit five different targets in a matter of minutes. One private. Well, that kind of leads into the final question, Sam. What is the greatest challenge you had to overcome? That's a toughie. Because when I look at it, you know, I look at my life and I say, you were one lucky son of a bitch, and I was. What was my greatest challenge? To stay alive first, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I tell about a new guy come up and join us. So when we were out on the move, the next thing I look to my right and here's this kid. So I said, you got a problem? He said, no, why? I said, well, what are you doing? He said, he said they told me you're lucky, so I'm sticking by you. I said, no, 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 no. I said, those guys are good with the 88. I said, they could put an 88 in your hip pocket. So I said, you get the hell away from me. And I said, if they pick on you, and I hope they do rather than me, 
He looked at me and said, don't misunderstand. I said, if they pick on you, I'm here to help. I said, if they pick on me, I hope you'll come and help me. Within an hour and a half, he was dead. Oh, my God. Yeah, what are the odds? See, so I had so many situations where the luck of the Irish, as they say, was there with me all the time. And, of course, they didn't know whether it was Catholic or Protestant. My name's McGee. They all thought it was Catholic. So long as I had the cloth on, he was it. <laughs> right. He belongs. What do you got to say, Father? Not a father, too bad. I thought you were accidental. It's okay. If the other one comes by, I'll say hello for you. You know, crazy as hell, wouldn't you? Look at how nonchalant we were in our approach to everything. Does that answer that question or not? I don't think so. Well, yeah, the greatest challenge you had to overcome was staying alive and taking care of your buddies. Yes, staying alive was the key. And when the war was over and I, I referred to a right and went to Shadow and then Rivers, and I bounced right back up to a corporal and, and I requalified and then I trained people. I figured I'd train more than 2,500 Canadians in parachute jumping alone. Amazing. And then I, and the guy, and I broke my leg and they said I'd never jump again in the force. And then I went to the RCR for training. So I'm not at the RCR a few days and I asked to see the CO. I'm before the commanding officer. I can even remember Colonel Peter Bignum. And I walk in and he said, uh, you want to see me? I said, yes, sir. I said, uh, I'm looking at moving on. I have no wish to serve under you. Don't ask for a transfer. I tell him, I have no wish to serve under you. He looks at me and he said, and why? I look around and I said, Colonel, and the chief instructor is there, the and all on the other side. I said, I trained you at Rivers, Manitoba. I trained everybody in this room. And I said, then you come back here and you're the RCR. You're not airborne, period. I trained you airborne. I went out. I said, May, uh, would you leave the room for a moment? I came back in and I got the shock of my life. He turned around and said, thanks. We all were taken back by your approach, but you're correct. We aren't airborne. We're RCR. I said, wear your hat badge with pride, Colonel, but you're airborne or you're not. And you're not. And there's this battalion. And can you imagine, sir, how long we've been training the RCR, your battalion, alone, and you're not at the least bit towards airborne? The whole training plan was reshuffled, and I was involved in it, and, and they went airborne. <laughs> oh, I was a real bastard, but it was effective. Like, I uh, talked to the senior officers that know me, and they said, that's kind of Mr. McGee. Like, one colonel, I pulled him into the ground day in and day out. One student called me everything but a good Christian. And off he went to Fort Bragg. He was tops in the Rangers. Yeah, I topped the course. He come back and he says, I was number one. I said, you goddamn snippy bastard. I said, yes, but you made life miserable for me. I guess what, his two sons, they're both in the Armed Forces, twin boys. One was the major last I heard out west, Edmonton. And one is already gone through the, he was at the Airborne Regiment. He was CEO of the Airborne Regiment. Wow. Anyhow, it's amazing how it rubs off, eh? Absolutely. I can remember his two kids walking along the church one Sunday and was father and that there and having a conversation. And it was comic as hell listening to those two little boys. And then I turned around later and hear their major and colonel. Holy Christ. And I got to tell you about J.J.T. McManus. Unreal. Well, way back, I had an interview and they said, if you had to select an RSM you would serve under. Who would you serve under? I said, there's no question, J.J.T. McManus. Why? I said, well, first of all, he doesn't have his pets, and he's a straight shooter. 
calls an ace and ace and said, I can trust him. The person says, you can trust him? What's that got to do? I said, oh, you haven't lived, sir, unless you trust people. And you've got to know who to trust. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I specialize in teaching leadership, and I loved every minute of it. The joy of it was that I looked at the first day and turned around and say, I hope some of what we have to do rubs off on you. Because you see, you're going to replace all those seniors you today that you're looking at. That is, if you make it. But it's, making it is your job, not my job, our job. Our job is to provide. Your job is to make use of it. And it works. Do you know Bart for winters? He's a retired RSM. And Bart for years, everywhere we went, and he'd say, and this was my sergeant major. So this went on for years, and I never questioned it. And one day I said to him, I said, Bart, would you like to tell me about it? He said, yep. I said, it's very simple, sir. On my first course, he said, you were it. He said, we knew we could trust you immediately we met you. It's the feeling we got. You were always there for us. You would crucify us physically, mentally, and but you made sure that we got the best. And you had a saying, I'd rather bury you here than some bury you over there. And we listened. And we just went from being a lance corporal and up the ladder to our pinnacle. And uh, thanks to you, we achieved our goals. And he said, I surpassed my goal. Thanks to you. See, these are the honors and accolades that you get from uh, those that you serve. You might think you're it. You might think you're the one. But it's not. It's your contribution to others, which is the key. And it's very, very important. Absolutely, Sam. We've come to the end of the show. I always enjoy having the opportunity to talk to you. And, and you know that every time I see you in a room, I, I come over and sit down and, and listen to the stories. And I could listen all day. And I hope that we can meet again and share some more stories, share some more experiences in the future. I always look forward to meeting you at their different events, parades, dinners, and things of that nature. Thank you so much, Sam. You're most welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage the next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. NTAG music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.